It's really exciting to be with you. Some of, who of you know that the Comrades is happening today? Right, a couple of runners out there. Has anyone ever done a running race, a cycling race, the, you know, a canoeing race? Anyone done, anyone done some racing? You know what I'm talking about, right? If you're going to do a race, it, it requires, if you're like me, right, unlike some of my friends, it requires a lot of training, right? Because uh, my first August was very, very slow. It was about seven and a half hours, and I swore to myself I would never spend that long on a bicycle again. And, uh, so I made sure to train for my future races. And so if you know, you know what a little bit of what that's like. It means getting up early in the morning, uh, usually when it's cold, maybe enduring some bad weather. Because you know, if you're going to do the race, you've just got to get out there. You've got to put the miles in. You've got to do the best you can. Maybe if you want to do well in your race, you realize that having some kind of varied discipline helps you in the race that you're running. So you might want to do some, you know, uh, fast burst, short distance burst where you're pushing yourself hard, go as fast as you can. Sometimes you're going to run along and just push your distance. Sometimes you know you're going to climb the hills. Sometimes you're going to have a more mellow flat run. Th- those things help in building the right kind of muscles and stamina for a race. Maybe you want to plan well. So I remember when I ran the Ocean's Half, you could go to the expo and you got these really helpful little armbands. And the armbands told you that if you wanted to achieve this time for the race, then you needed to get to these checkpoints by this time. And so I would then take that information, I would work that out and say how many minutes per K I needed to run at each section of the race to make sure that I was running each kilometer at the right pace to get to those places now, if you're doing a short race, maybe eating is not as important. You know, we just like have a nice pasta meal or pizza the night before. But if you are doing a serious race, maybe doing the Ironman, then, I mean, I know guys have conditioned their diet for a year to make sure that their body is ready for the strain that they're going to put on it in the race. Right? So a race is something you can really work hard for. And then you get to the, the actual day, right? The, the actual run. And, and imagine maybe you're not like me and uh, you start doing this run and you start doing really, really well. You're, you're actually, you're ahead of the pace markers, you know, and the, there's not a lot of people in front of you. They're mostly behind you. You're kind of ahead of the whole pack. But, but as you're running, it's a little bit strange because you're used to there being a whole bunch of people lining the roads and as you climb the hill going, oh, being a ho, oh, being a ho, and you're just like hoping to make it up the hill. You're listening for that loud speaker that's pumping lacquer tunes and music. You're trying to smell the bacon and eggs of the guys cooking on the side of the road, but, but all of that is missing for some reason. And, and there's no spectators on the side of the road and you don't hear any of the music and eventually you, you're coming into the final the 500 meters of the race and you know if you're finishing oceans you get to UCT and you run onto the field but there's no stands and there's no big arch and there's no mat that you get to run over and, and there's just no one there. I mean if that was the end of your race it would feel so empty wouldn't it? So so. Hollow, like everything you've worked so hard for, you've fought for, you've sacrificed for, you've trained for, it's just empty. See, the sad reality is that sometimes that is true in life. Sometimes you can look back on something and see that in hindsight and in wisdom, this thing that you pursued that, that seemed so good at the time is now actually ultimately worthless. Maybe it even cost you something. The passage that we're going to look at today as we continue in our series in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today, we're going to be looking at this moment where this was true for the Corinthian church. They had pursued something, and Paul writes to them, and he says, guys, I've got such bad news. You have failed totally 
and completely in this thing that you have pursued. In fact, the chapter we're going to read and the part of it that we're going to read contains perhaps Paul, definitely Paul's strongest language in this letter and possibly in any of the letters, perhaps with the exception of the Galatians that he rebukes quite harshly as well. But this is some of Paul's strongest language that we're going to read together this morning. And he rebukes them, and that rebuke, it, it carries through for us today, and it, it cuts with like surgeon precision into our hearts, into those places that, that we really keep well guarded. So before we go any further this morning, I want us to just stop, and we need to pray, because we're going to confront some stuff this morning that is deeply entrenched in our culture and, and often into our hearts. And God's word promises that he penetrates between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. And we need, I want to ask him to do that in us this morning. I don't want you to hear God's word and walk away and forget what you looked like when you saw yourself in the mirror. So God, we pray this morning. And we come and we intentionally submit ourselves to you this morning. And we pray, Jesus, that as we look at your word, that the spirit of God would work in our midst. And you would come into our hearts and you would bring conviction if there needs to be conviction. You would bring encouragement if there needs to be encouragement. But Lord, we want to be challenged by your word this morning. And we want your word to do the work that you desire it to do in us. And so we intentionally submit ourselves to you. And we say, Holy Spirit, come and work in your church. That we might be the church and the people that you desire us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be looking, as I said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is really written in two halves. And the first half is about a dispute that happens between two guys in the church. And the second half is about sexual immorality and having sex with prostitutes. And we're going to spend most of our time in the first half. right? But I want to make just a few observations from the second half, because it pains my heart to leave sections of Scripture aside as we move past. So I'm going to share just a couple of take-home nuggets, and I want to encourage you to go spend the time in the chapter yourself, because it's it's really good. Right? Also, nutshell, don't sleep with prostitutes. Okay, but that there's more to it. Right? But here's what was going on. In the Corinthian church, there were some people that were sleeping with prostitutes, which was a normal part of the Corinthian culture. And they had carried that into their new faith in Christ. And then they began to justify that and, and explain away why what they were doing wasn't wrong. And the way in which they went about doing that was they were like, well, you know, so God has saved me and God is spirit. And so what's going to endure past this life is my spirit. And so it doesn't matter really what happens with my body. That's not really, God's not really interested in that. What God's really interested in is my spirit and my soul that he's going to save. So they create this dualism between the body and the spirit. And they say, now, therefore, because what I'm doing is only with my body, it doesn't matter. And so Paul writes and he's like, guys, you have missed the boat horribly. And he says, God, the bo- your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's the most sacred place. It's the place where the very presence of God dwells. And so you can't think that what you do with your body doesn't matter. And the warning for us in that is to be very careful to not do what the Corinthians did and use their theology or their scripture to twist and justify sin. Second thing, little nuggets to take out of the second half of 1 Corinthians 6, which we won't be reading, by the way. It's for you to read when you go home. And that is this. It's that sex is, creates a bond between two people that goes beyond just the physical act. Sex is not something casual. It's not something that's light. But it, it is beautiful, and it's created to be a powerful blessing in marriage. 
and a terrible thing to misuse. And so Paul writes to the church and he, he shows them that this thing is not just something that you can engage in casually, but it's a powerful thing. Third thing he does is there's this incredible encouragement. It's actually one of my favorite passages of scripture. I know I say that a lot because I have a few, but that this is one of my real favorites in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 17. That's where Paul says we have been joined into God's spirit and we are now one with him in spirit. It's this beautiful, incredible encouragement about who we are as Christians and how God joins himself to us. So we never have to ask like David and plead with the Lord, don't take your spirit from me, God, because God joins himself to us. There's, there's a bond, there's a welding, there's a joining of two things that have become one. Finally, we're reminded that our bodies actually belong to God. So not only is it just something that's not immaterial, but actually it's really important. And there's a call that we have to honor our bodies in the way in which we use them and the way in which we treat them. So those are some of the things that exist in the second half of 1 Corinthians 6. Please go and read it yourself. It's a lovely passage of scripture. We're going to spend our time in the first half of 1 Corinthians 6. So let's read that together this morning. Here's what Paul says. He says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge these trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more than the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned by the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers? The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat, and you do wrong, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Do you not know that... Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I really pray that the Lord will bless the reading of his word to us this morning. So let's take this piece by piece, and let's start with this. What was going on in Corinth that Paul was addressing in this moment? And it's reasonably easy for us to work out, it's reasonably possible to work out as we read Paul's responses to the situation, what was happening in the first place. We get a fairly good picture. There was one guy, I'm going to call him Tim. Right, which is not because there are any Tims in the church that this applies to necessarily, but we're just going to give him a name so I don't have to call him Man A. Right, so here's Tim. Tim did business with another guy. We're going to call that guy Bob. Same reasoning behind Bob. Right, Tim and Bob did some business together. They are both Christians. They're both part of the Corinthian church. But Tim wasn't totally honest with Bob, and he cheated Bob. He probably defrauded Bob out of some money. And so Bob is quite upset, and he has taken Tim to court. He's taken Tim to the Roman courts through the Roman legal system to seek redress for the, the money that Tim stole from him. And Paul looks at this incident in the Corinthian church, and he says, Guys, this is absolutely terrible. You have totally and completely failed as a church because this is happening in your midst. 
And the, I mean, the English doesn't carry the sense quite as well as the Greek, but it is so emphatic. It's like, how dare you take this thing before unbelievers for judgment? Like, how could you do it? Don't you understand what a terrible thing it is that you've done? And so if that is really so terrible, let's explore what Paul says and why he says it and why it was such a failure for the church. And if it was like, what it means for us to not do the same thing. So Paul does this and he, there's two problems that he addresses with the Corinthians for these actions. And the first is that they have failed to understand their identity as the people of God. And he makes this point in a number of rhetorical questions that he kind of bitingly calls out to them. He says, don't you know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more than the things of this life? Do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? And he levels these questions at the church because he wants to cause them to realize who they are. He wants them to recognize, to remember, to bring to the forefront of their minds that they are the people of the kingdom of God. Church, this morning, we are the continuation of that. We are the people of the kingdom of God. And that means something. Now, it's not just a nice phrase that we say in church to make us feel lacquer and maybe different from other people. It's, it's a phrase that has consequences. And in this particular instance, the consequence Paul is speaking about, he says, that one day, the church, this church will participate in the final and ultimate judgments of the world. We're going to sit with God in judgments of those who have not yet found the kingdom. And so to be a part of the kingdom of God, it means something. It has consequences that affect your status and they affect your responsibility. It's a little bit like, you know, if we can compare it to an earthly kingdom, you can think about the British royal family. Right? It's, it's the reason the, the media and the world is not very happy with Harry and Meghan at the moment. Because they don't want to accept the responsibility that comes with the status. For the church to be a part of the kingdom people of God means that one day we're going to join with our king in executing his judgment on the people of this world. We're going to be a part of weighing the eternal fate of men and angels, of evaluating the sum of their life's actions and their response to Jesus. And if we're going to exercise that level of judgment, surely, Paul says, surely we can do something about this little matter in the church. And then he doubles down on on this idea by drawing out the absurdity of what they're doing. So bear with me for a moment. He says, if you, as the kingdom people of God, are going to adjudicate over the totality of the lives of the unsaved, and you'll see from verse 9 that those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's going to be the judgment that you're going to make. If you're going to participate in that judgment, how on earth can you ask those people whose way of life is scorned in the church to judge a dispute between two brothers in the church? Their morality is so distant from yours that when you weigh the totality of their life, you're going to condemn them. But in the depravity of their thinking right now, you're taking this matter before them and you're asking them for their opinion. That's when he gets to verse 5. And and this this is the harsh language. It's like, if I can paraphrase it, like he looks at them and he says, How can you be so stupid? How, you idiots, can you not see what a terrible decision that you're making? And then, and then he comes with like deeply biting sarcasm and he says, 
Surely you guys who are so wise. You know, if you remember the first four chapters and how they were bragging and the wisdom and all the stuff that they had. He's like, surely if you guys are, are so wise and so with it and so in the spirit, surely you're able to find someone in the church who could do this. Just that tone, which is very unusual. right? It's not the way we usually deal with pastoral issues. <laughs> Promise. Just that tone just tells you how seriously Paul treated this matter. Because as the kingdom people of God, he knows, and we should know, and they should have known, that you are different to the people outside of the church. That the spirit of the living God is in you. You don't have to go hunt for him. You don't need to go and seek wisdom in places that you can't find. James tells us if any of you lacks wisdom, you come to God and you ask him, and he loves to generously give wisdom to you as you need it. If you've got a problem inside the church, God is able to help you solve it. How how can you go reach out there for something that they don't even have? It's the first issue that he takes with the church. But the second builds on it and it cuts deeper. And it's a heart issue. It's a failure in their heart. So he writes us from verse 7. He says, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have already been completely defeated. Why would you not rather be wronged? Why would you not rather be cheated? But instead, you yourselves, you cheat and you do wrong. And then you do this to brothers and to sisters. And in these two verses, Paul addresses all three players in the drama. And he exposes their failure. First, he goes to the church and he says, guys, how could you even allow this to happen? There are lawsuits among you. As a church, that's a, a... it's a bad mark against a black t- dot against the name of the church, right? And then he goes to Bob, the guy who's been defrauded, who's the plaintiff in this case. And he says, Bob, why would you not rather be wronged? Why would you not rather be cheated and accept the loss? And then he goes to Tim, so that Tim doesn't feel justified. just saying, Bob, you need to be the bigger man. He says, Tim, how could you go and go about cheating Bob, who's your brother in the Lord? You yourselves cheat and you do wrong. This really builds on that idea of being a kingdom people of God. Because if we are a kingdom people of God, we need to live by a different ethic. An ethic and a morality that is not found here in this world, but an ethic and a morality that comes from the world to come. The kingdom to come, the life hereafter. And it finds application at each of these three levels, to the church and to Bob and to Tim. But each of these three rebukes is designed to expose in us One great flaw in our human nature. Something that I know I wrestle with. Something that I'm sure most of us wrestle with. It's that in ourselves, we tend to love things more than we should. We tend to love things more than we should. Let's let's take it one at a time. Let's start with Tim. Tim chose to cheat Bob. We're not told why he chose to cheat Bob. Right, But we can speculate. And so these are just ideas. Uh, I have no idea if any of these are right. None of them could be right. But let's speculate. Sometimes, maybe it was just normal practice in Tim's industry to cheat Bob. I remember chatting to a friend of mine. And uh, he was in, he's reasonably high up in his, in his workplace. And they were in a big meeting with some clients. And his bosses made a bunch of promises to these clients. And then that meeting finished. And the next meeting started with another set of clients. And his bosses made another set of promises to those clients. And then that meeting finished. And my mate turns to his boss and he's like, but you know we can't meet both of those promises. 
Like it's not possible. It's possible. Well, you know, we'll just whoever comes in first and pays first, we'll give them. And the other one can just sort themselves out. Maybe it was just standard practice in his industry, and that's just how people did business. Perhaps Tim had made promises that he couldn't keep for for whatever reason. No, perhaps he was he was trying to fend off a claim from someone else, and he couldn't give Bob what he owed him. Perhaps things had really got out of hand at home and he'd had to siphon cash out of the business because maybe they had a major medical expense and a bill that he needed to pay. I don't know. We'll never know. But at the root of it is this. Tim chose to cheat Bob because he wanted more money for something that he felt that he needed. That's what we know. And that thing may have felt desperate at the time. It may not have. We don't know that. Might like Tim more if the thing felt desperate, but it's neither here nor there. And the reason Tim failed is twofold. See, he failed to trust God to fulfill the real need that he had. And then he chose to pursue his own ungodly solution in order to get the thing that he really desired. Now that may have been something that God has promised him, I don't know. Right, something he really couldn't be without. And there would have been a call for him then to trust God to provide that. Or maybe it was just something that he, that he wanted, that he really felt like he needed in his own judgments. But he chose to pursue that need rather than to live obediently to God. Does it remind anyone else a little bit of Abraham and Hagar? Right? Pursuing something God had promised, but not waiting for the Lord to do it, but doing it in his own thinking and understanding. Let's take Bob. Bob is the victim of injustice, so we want to have a lot of sympathy for Bob. And yet Bob also gets rebuked by Paul for seeking restitution. So we've got to process that a little bit. Because ultimately, here's the thing, friends. Bob suffers from the same sin as Tim. He has loved things more than he should have. And again, we, we don't know the specifics of the situation, but we know this. Right, it's relatively easy to overlook a small infraction. So the other day I, I went to Checkers and I decided I needed to stop spending like 40 rand per lunch. And so I decided I'm going to buy an eight-pack of instant noodles for about 46 rands. And that was going to give me four lunches. So off I bought the, the eight-pack of noodles and I bought something else. I think it was for Glenda. I can't remember. But um, I got my two things. I go to the express checkout and um, the lady scans the things, and the price comes to about what I'd expect. And I'm about to pay when she says, no, hang on. And we look at the slip, and there's three items on the slip. And we're like, why are there three items on the slip? We only scanned two. I watched you scan two. Why are there three items? And for whatever reason, one of the barcodes has included five rand for some other item that isn't there. Um, and so she's going to go call the manageress over and, you know, do the thing. And, revert. and I was like, you know what, it's fine. It's five rand. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. So it's just real easy to be the bigger man when we're talking about five bucks. It's a lot harder when we're talking about a lot of money. When we're talking thousands of rands or millions of rands. When the thing that you've been defrauded out of is really going to cost you. When you've spent a significant part of your savings on this thing. Or when your job is on the line. Or your ability to put food on the table. Your ability to pay for rent is being compromised. There's a whole other kettle of fish. 
And when that's the reality, we feel vindicated or we feel compelled to seek redress. Both for our needs, but also because we have a sense of justice. Like it's unjust what you have done to me. You have taken from me that is not yours, and it's my right to go and make that right. Here's a challenge that Paul levels to Bob. He says, Bob, even though you have been defrauded, will you trust God to take care of you? Will you wait for the justice of God? Will you choose to forgive Tim as God in Christ forgave you? Do you really believe that the material things of this life are of no consequence compared to the eternal glory of knowing God? And friends, that's where the challenge lands for us this morning. We sang some beautiful songs. Guys, I loved it. Also, I was very excited to see the new song from Phil Wickham in there. I love that song. Right? We worship Jesus and we proclaim our love for him. But do you really believe that better is one day in his courts than a thousand days anywhere else? Do you really believe that when we look at Jesus, everything else fades into the background? And honoring him and glorifying him is the first and only thing that matters. You see, friends, if we're truly a kingdom people of God, we need to live in light of that reality. We need to live by the ethics of our eternal home, not our temporal one. We need to live with a real expectation of eternity. Because one day, we will all come to realize that anything we have bought will not leave this place with us. That's the call. And it's a deep challenge. It's a deep challenge to our hearts. I'm going to consider it a little bit more. Later, but uh, Paul, in his grace, doesn't want to leave it there. And so he wants to now drive this idea home. And so he doesn't just leave them with this conviction, but now he says, guys, I've shown you the carrot, now I want to give you the hammer, right? Or the whip, whatever, I can't, I'm mixing metaphors here, right? And so in verse 9, he now says, guys, there are consequences to failing to do this. You are a kingdom people of God. There's a call to live by a kingdom ethic, and if you don't, It's dangerous. Verse 9 says, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. His point is really simple. This is Corinthians. If you guys continue to act in the way that you are acting now, you will not inherit the promised kingdom. That is waiting for you. Because each of these points in this list is not a general condemnation of sin. Each of these points points to behavior that exists in their own church. And it is addressed in this letter. Sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality. That goes back to chapter 5. goes into the second half of this chapter in chapter 6. Idolatry points forward to chapter 10. Theft, greed, swindling are in this moment right now. Chapter 6. Slander goes back to chapters 1 to 4. Drunkenness goes forward to chapter 11. And his warning to them is deep and it's profound. And it's, guys, you think that you're such a wonderful church and the evidence of the Spirit is present in your midst. 
But if you fail to address the cancer that is also there, you will not inherit the promises of the kingdom that you aspire to. As the kingdom people of God, you are called to live by a different standard, by the kingdom ethic. So please be sure that you do, for your inheritance stands in jeopardy. That's the warning Paul gave to the Corinthian church. And friends, I want to say to us, we would do well to hear that same warning. That the call to live as the kingdom people of God is not just an encouragement, but it is a divine ordinance from God. It is a call from the king to live in light of the eternal promise, to live by the ethics that come from his kingdom, not from ours. But Paul is ever gracious in the way in which he writes and communicates. And and so he doesn't want to leave the Corinthians there. And so he gives them this final word to close this section of chapter 6. And it's the same encouragement that he gave them in chapter 5 when he addressed the other sexual immorality in their midst. And it was this, church, become who God has already made you to be. Become who God has already made you to be. And so he goes, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's your past. That's your history. But because of the work of God in your life, that's no longer who you are. You've been cleansed of the filthy ways in which you used to walk. You have been set apart to God for holiness. And you have been declared righteous in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit because of what Jesus did for you. That's the wonder of God that's been at work in your life, church. And so, if you remember Paul and the way in which he communicates and my love of big words, you will know that these, this last verse is Paul's use of the indicative, right? It's his statement of what is. And usually Paul will pair that with an imperative. In this case, I want to share with you my belief is the imperative is implied. Because this is what God has done. Because this is who God has declared you to be. Now go and live like that. Go and be who God has already declared that you are. That's where our section ends today. And so I'm going to make just a few closing comments, and then uh, the worship team is going to lead us in one final song. You guys can hold for a moment. Right. It's important to recognize, here's the first thing, that this passage deals specifically with a case of Christians suing each other. This is not a blanket ban on all lawsuits by all Christians in all circumstances. In fact, if you go and read the book of Acts, you'll see that in Paul's own life, Paul appealed to Roman law for his own defense. You can read that in Acts chapter 25 when he appeals to Caesar. But, and I want to say, so that's your caveat, right? That's the grace. But, and this is a big but, the reasoning behind Paul's judgment here is broad. And it's reasoning that we need to hear. It's it's reasoning that we need to allow to penetrate into our hearts, which is hard work. We might need to dig some soil in our hearts to make space for it, because it's real easy to hear and go, oh, there's a caveat, we're safe. Lawsuits that are motivated by the pursuit or the recovery of wealth need to be deeply interrogated at a heart level. Because our call as the kingdom people of God is not to fight for and after that which we don't take with us. Our call is to choose the Jesus way. 
to follow the way of non-retaliation, the way that embodies faith and trust in God. And in the promise that eternity is far more important than now. The way that, that chooses to endure loss and suffering because we know that it holds a greater glory for us. The way of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who as they walked into the furnace said, I know that our God is able to deliver us. And I know that he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will follow him and praise him. That's the kingdom ethic and the call. And and I wish I could speak to you more about this from Peter because Peter writes so strongly into this idea of enduring suffering for the sake of Jesus. I'll share with you just a couple verses from 1 Peter 4. He says, Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Because if you are insulted because of the name of Jesus, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if you suffer, don't suffer for doing wrong. Don't be because you're a murderer or a thief or you're some kind of criminal, right? But if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God because you bear his name. Remember the apostles? They came out of prison praising God because they had been counted worthy to share in the punishment of Jesus. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do what is good. Second thing, penultimate thing. Some of us, hopefully not many of us, but some of us might be here this morning and you might need to take some time to reevaluate some decisions that you've made. Things you've chosen to pursue. And as you allow the scripture to penetrate your heart, you realize maybe you have followed the wrong ethic. And you need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, maybe I need to turn from this course. There's going to be a moment when I pray, and I want to invite you, if that's the space you feel like you need to do, just take that time to be with the Lord and allow him to speak into that place in your heart. And then I want to say to all of us, and I really I think we all need this, I want to ask God for a grace that the things of this life would not hold us as strongly as they tend to. That there would be a grace to live open-handedly before God, an ability to, to be free and abandoned to the eternal realities of the kingdom of God and not constrained by the things of this world that want to hold us back. So I'm going to close. I'm going to pray. The team is going to come up, and after that, we're going to close in a song together. And if you want to do ministry, the elders will be around afterwards, and we're so willing to to take some time to pray with you. But let's pray together now. Jesus, we thank you so much that it is because of you that we are sons and daughters of the King. That you are the one who has washed us. You have sanctified us. You have justified us. And those things that we used to be define our past. And they don't have to define our presence. And we want to really pray for a grace to, to not hold strongly onto the things of this world and to live in light of the, our eternal home. To live by the morality and the ethics of the kingdom of God that you teach us by the Spirit of God. 
God, give us grace to do that as we follow you, I pray. And if there are any of us here this morning, Lord, and we just, as we've sat here and we've heard your word, your spirit has touched our hearts, touched their hearts, and you've just, you've said this thing that you have pursued has not been of me. And there's a call for you to turn away from it, to stop it, and to come back to me. Lord, we want to pray just for a grace and for a courage to choose to repent, to receive the kindness of God in repentance, to turn back to you and to know your strength and your grace, to follow the Jesus way, to live by the ethics from above. Thank you, God. We give ourselves to you, Lord, and we pray. Come and make us more and more like Jesus. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.